You are listening to the Genesis Podcast, a community of faith, love, and hope. As we look to the scriptures, it is our desire to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you here. It's like a big blank spot right there. Everyone sits in the back and... Now, I know people have been kind of complaining about it being cold in here, so I think they turned the heater on. Is anyone else sweating, or is it just me? It's just me. Okay, I'll sweat then. Don't touch that dial. We've got a lot to go over this morning, and so if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're continuing our Advent series, and we've been looking about how this season is meant to continue changing the world, that we, we celebrate Christ being born once a year, but it is something that is taking place in history since it happened, that God has started a revolution in the birth of Christ, that his kingdom has broken in, and we are a part of that, and we are seeing how that we can further the kingdom of God by the things that we do. What we believe should always result in how we live. When you think something or believe in something, it causes you to conduct yourself in a way that accordingly. If you believe your car is going to start in the morning, you put the key in and you turn it. If you're not sure, then you might have to park on a hill so that you can jumpstart it. Done that many a times, right? But our belief produces an action and it's meant to. And I think we get so much information and so much insight into who God is by this advent. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Lord, I pray that as we look again at your entrance into humanity, Father, that we would have more understanding about who you are. And Father, that you would capture not only our attention, but our hearts and our devotion as we desire to live for you 
and to serve you. We do pray this in Jesus' name. The idea of this is how God would enter into the world to start his own kingdom is so unusual. This is not how we do things. Kingdoms are not developed by babies being born helpless. Kingdoms are developed by overthrowing other people, by asserting our power, by by taking control by force. That is how kingdoms are established in our world. That is the way we do things. And so the fact that God would come into a place helpless as a child is giving us insight into who God is and how he does things. And this really shouldn't surprise us because this has been his way throughout all of scripture. Behind the scenes, he is always coming and helping those who are downtrodden, always helping those who have been oppressed. This is how he works. It isn't from the the top down. It it seems to be from those who are, are needy and those who are hurting. We saw in Exodus chapter three, verse seven, it says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. This is the Jewish story. It begins here. God hears the cry, sees the misery, and he delivers them from the oppressor. But again, he does it in the most unique ways. He did it through his servant Moses. Even as God is talking to Moses here and he says, I see their misery, I hear their cry, then what does God do? He says, go. And he sends Moses, one person, into the greatest nation at that time to deliver his people. Again, that's not the way we do things. And Egypt is this picture of captivity. It's this picture of slavery. The most powerful empire in the world at that time built on the backs of the slaves, on the backs of the people who are poor. And the gospel begins here. Caesar Augustus, Rome, issued a decree. Joseph, Mary, Jesus are slaves under the most powerful empire in the world at the time. They're not royalty. They are the least. And just as God delivered the slaves in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, God is delivering mankind even as a slave, as a child in the most powerful nation at the world of that time. And and God is telling us something. He is showing us something by his actions. He's showing how he cares for those who are in need. In Proverbs 19, 17, it says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. And so our generosity towards those who are in need, God sees it as lending to him. And we saw here in this passage that the angels came and they said, we have great news for all people. 
that this Messiah has come for the world. He's come for all of us. And it's important that we see that God has postured to reach even those who are disfranchised, even those who are neglected, even those who are forgotten. God doesn't forget. In fact, Jesus in one of his stories talks about the the sheep and the goats being separated and, and the goats on one side and the sheep on the other. And at the end of his story, he he talks about how those who took care of the poor and those who took care of the needy and clothed them, that the Lord would actually come to them and say, when the Lord saw you hungry and fed you and thirsty and you gave him something to drink, when did we see you, Lord, a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will reply, truly, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And we see that this is the posture of God. He, he enters into the place where those are broken. He enters into the place where those are weak. He, he starts at the bottom and he embraces those who are hurting. And that's where we see this kingdom breaking in. And we see that God cares about this. And if we don't care about this, then we're missing the heart of God. And it's important we recognize that not only in this Advent season, but at all times. But what we're wanting to do is capture the heart of God once again in this season and not make it about the shopping and not about just all the things that we can do, but make it about the generosity that God has shown. And so we're going to at this time watch a video. Val, could you get the lights? It's our desire to be the accurate representation of Jesus. And that's why we are postured to reach beyond ourselves. That's why we have, for the last few years, taken on an endeavor that is really bigger than our community. We built a latrine in 2013. We we built a school eating facility, a cafeteria, last year. And this year, we want to start a food program and help with the children there in Haiti. We're doing this not because it it just makes us feel better. We're doing this because we believe this is where God is at. This is the people that God cares about. And so we need to care as well. And God's wanting to reach the world and he's wanting to do it through us. He wanted to deliver the children of Jacob, of Israel, from Egypt, and he did it through Moses. Jesus told his disciples, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Then he told them, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we are wanting to step into this role. And so for the last few years, we have been going to Haiti because we feel that it is our way of stepping into this place where indeed God already is and the blessing already is. And I want to have Denise come and share with us at this time for a reason. Denise is the reason we are in Haiti. And so let's welcome Denise as she comes up. You'll have to pardon me. I'm going to read what I have today because 
Um, if I'm asked to share about Haiti, I can babble on for hours. And so, for your sake, I have written um, this out for you. My first trip to Haiti was in 2010, shortly after the earthquake. I had seen the devastation on TV, but I wasn't prepared in any way for what I was about to encounter. I visited our partner school, St. Andres, on that trip. I played with children. I talked with teachers, the principal, and the parents. I visited a ribbon-cutting ceremony of a church in the middle of nowhere, and I mean nowhere. <clears throat> the new church consisted of four wooden posts and a blue tarp. The people brought their very rudimentary benches from home to sit on. The people were excited. I was just hot. The people were welcoming. They were sharing their resources with us, even though a careful look at them let us know that they were quite literally starving. The same faith community that welcomed us so um, graciously would end up losing a third of its population over the course of the next year when the cholera epidemic hit Haiti. <clears throat> I was ready to leave after my few, first few days in Haiti. I had seen poverty in Mexico before when we traveled to the Colonias with Alex. I had read about poverty elsewhere in the world, but in Haiti it was unrelenting. Everywhere was an obvious need and even more unseen needs. I felt helpless. I had so much at home, and yet I was completely unable to alleviate the things I was seeing. It never ended. There were no nice neighborhoods. There were no better housing tracks. There were no pleasant suburbs. On the flight home, a colleague and I imagined what we would do if we had won the lottery, if we found a million dollars, if we had unlimited resources, etc. It was a game of sorts, but it's also a way of reflecting and decompressing after an experience of visiting Haiti. Dennis will tell you that I couldn't even talk about my trip for about a week. The reality of such suffering I felt was owed more than a count of my travels and experience, and I didn't know how to honor it. I just knew I wanted to do something besides photograph suffering and talk about it. <clears throat> Eventually, I would consider that a nonprofit would be sort of a nifty thing to start, to help keep kids in school who were otherwise headed to the city as domestic help, or into the fields as indentured servants, children as young as eight and nine years old. Parents I met were already sacrificing eating for days so that their children could remain in school. There is no public school system. It was that important to those parents, and their children were considered the lucky ones. We were already helping at St. Andres, and I knew there were plenty of organizations that helped schools and their students. But I had a notion to do things a little bit differently. I wanted it to be meaningful, but I also wanted it to be personal. I wanted to be sure that there was a long-term effect, that there was something tangible and real, and I wanted it to be about accompaniment, a long-term commitment that is a mutual journey for the people involved. No me and you, or us and them, but a we. 
I had it all worked out in my head for probably half a year. I just kept thinking about it and imagining it. But I really did want to do it. But I didn't. And then on New Year's Day 2011, Sam shared a message about living with intention. He talked about deciding to be purposeful in our lives, that we ought to be making sure that what we do with our lives counts for more than just accumulation and self-satisfaction. I distinctly remember during that message that I just wanted him to stop talking. I got it already. But I knew it wasn't Sam talking to me. I knew it was God shouting at me now to get a move on it and stop thinking about it and do something. And I believe it was the very next week that I contacted LegalZoom and began what became an 18-month process, I'd call it an ordeal, of becoming a federal and state-approved nonprofit. It wasn't easy. I can tell you that I often felt discouraged. I definitely felt like giving up and letting someone else do it. It was exhausting. It was lonely. I'm no businesswoman or legal expert. I'm a fourth grade teacher, for heaven's sake. And I was way out of my comfort zone, certainly out of anything close to my realm of experience or expertise. But I was determined to live with purpose and intention and see this through. Because we wanted to be sure that we were accompanying the children we had selected to receive assistance, we have been very purposeful in limiting the number of students we begin to journey with. We are in it for the long haul with each one of them. We know the children personally, and some of them aren't children anymore. We sit and eat with their families. We worship together. We visit. We speak of hopes and dreams. It is the relational part of this going out into the world that makes sharing Jesus meaningful and real. Today we have five university students. A nursing student, Adeli, who will return to her community when she graduates and provide the first health care her village has ever known. We have an agronomy student, Robinson, who hopes to start a tilapia farm and community food project for his village when he graduates. We have an engineering student who wants to figure out ways to provide running water to the central plateau. We have a business student, Esther, who figures she can run one of those hotels that the Americans are building now better than the Americans. We have an art student, Gary, who is gifted and will sell his work easily. He's particularly interesting to me because in his interview, he shared that his dream is to return to the central plateau and begin a school. His vision is exactly the same vision that Janot shared with me last year, and they don't know each other. And even more interesting to me is the same vision I shared five years ago with my colleague on the airplane on the way home. I have no idea what God's plans are there, but I know there is a plan and a purpose in it all, and I do intend to live intentionally and make it happen. We also have eight elementary students Two have been recently orphaned just in the last two weeks, and now we're wondering what our role needs to be and how it needs to change. 
Another student's father helps us when we arrive and depart from the airport. We have relocated that family into a safer part of the city, and we assist with their rent as well as Sonia's tuition. Our very first student, Schneider, sorry, Schneider, <clears throat> was sleeping on the steps of his school during the week as a nine-year-old because he didn't want to miss school or be late for it. When we learned he and his mother were living in a tent, we built a house for them. And when we learned that there were two younger brothers and a grandmother who were now able to be reunited, we rejoiced with them. All three of the boys are now in school, and Schneider is in high school now, and he wants to be a priest like Janot when he graduates. We'll be with him. There's also Worley, and I have to look at Mary and Sam because they're smiling. <clears throat> Worley will graduate from high school this year and is currently negotiating with us for his future. I say negotiating because now we are a part of his family. We have a responsibility to honor his parents' requests for him while supporting his dreams and wisely investing in both. It's a tricky thing, but we are all believers, and that makes it work. I do know this. Of all the people I have met in Haiti, there is no one with greater potential to run that country more successfully than Worley. Those who have traveled to Haiti with me know what I mean. We have helped his family build their home and a little shop across the road where mom and dad are able to sell some of the products from the farms they both work on. Worley also sells some of his artwork there. <clears throat> Which brings me to Saint Art Akuti, the women's art cooperative in Kanj, just up the road from Worley's house. Here is a group of women and men who work to produce products um, that people like you and I purchase when we visit. The bracelets that many of you purchase and wear, and much of the handiwork items are produced by these women. They were my first friends in Haiti. Who knew that a friendship could begin over a white woman who perspired so profusely that it was a source of fascination and eventual conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. It was a hard-earned friendship, but one that I value greatly, and we now support the art cooperative with supplies and materials. It is also this same site that we held our teacher education program this past summer. When the Ministry of Education in Haiti decided that every teacher, everywhere, had to have a particular certification or be working toward it, we determined that we could do something about this. The truth is, the children at St. Andres would be without their teachers this year, without a school at all if we hadn't. We partnered with the University of Redlands to provide coursework last summer. Janot got the teachers to conj, the hospital provided room and board, and the teachers attending received university credit that allowed them to keep their jobs and St. Andre's to continue for another school year. We're trying now to raise the funding for three more groups of those teachers to attend this next summer. In all these things we do, I have come to realize now as we begin our fifth year of a Haiti partnership that what we do in Haiti is as much about our relationships there as they are here. 
When we partner to make something big happen, like a school cafeteria in Haiti, or when we partner for something quiet and less glamorous, like cleaning buckets for families moving from homelessness to an apartment in Upland, we are touching the heart of God. Feeding a child in Haiti is as much about meeting with the farmers who will provide the food, the women who will cook it, the teachers who will serve it, as it is working with each other to make it all happen. It is relational. It is what connects us with the world beyond ourselves. It is what touches lives and gives meaning and purpose to ourselves and to those whom we accompany. In reality, we find that we are being accompanied on our journey called life in the same measure that we accompany others. Even more so, we are reminded that in as much as we do for others, and I would add accompany others, we are doing so unto Christ and accompanying Christ in his journey as he accompanies us. It is this that I find most glorious, and it is this which I believe we are all called. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. If you have any questions of how you can be involved in helping in Haiti, talk to Denise. You can ask her about For a Reason and all that they're doing. We have been working as, uh, with them, I mean, because she has the contacts. That's who we go through, and, and it's been, again, wonderful. You see, this is God's intention, and it's always been his intention to reach everyone. Not just those who are powerful, not just those who are Christian, but the world. When we see how Christ came in, we see that picture. In 1 John 4, 13, 14, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. A lot of times we have selective vision. What we think of as the world is usually our world and all that it entails. And everyone has selective vision. When I was in Haiti in 2013, I went to a school. And there in the school, there was this mural. It's hard to see here, but it's a picture of Jesus, but he's black. And I remember thinking, what? What's with that? Black Jesus, you know? But what's the difference between that and white Jesus with blue eyes? It's selective. We want a Jesus who looks like us, who will relate to us, who understands us, who will meet us where we're at. And so what we start to do is project what we desire on that image. And that's a natural thing to do. But what we, we fail to see oftentimes we, we miss some of the important things that are taking place. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's account, we might miss the importance of the fact that it was shepherds who God revealed himself to. Shepherds are the poor. They are the outcasts. They are filthy. They are not regarded in any way. And this is who God shows up to reach and to, to bring this heralding news to. In Matthew's account, throughout the genealogy, we see that Matthew includes Gentiles and women. 
both who were despised at that time. He also brings in the Magi, people of a different religion also who were despised at that time and we miss these things but they are intentional because god has brought his son to reach the world and that includes the marginalized that includes those people and what where do we see ourselves in that story you have king herod someone who is wealthy someone who is affluent someone who has power You have the Magi who are pagans, who are outcasts from Israel and their belief system. You have shepherds who are poor and disregarded by most everybody. Who do we identify with in that story? It's probably not the shepherds. It's probably not the Magi. Do we see ourselves as the people who have power and authority and the ability to actually bring change? Or do we see ourselves as bystanders in this story? And you see, God has revealed himself to those who the world despises. God is reaching those who no one else is thinking about. In this story of the powerful, the affluent, the poor, the slaves, if we're not careful, when we read the story of Christ, we may not see clearly what is happening and who actually we identify with. There is a passage in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 4 through 9, that I I think encapsulates this powerfully. This is the account of the Queen of Sheba. When she meets Solomon, and I I think we, we miss the point of this story. 1 Kings was written in the time of the Babylonian captivity, maybe by Jeremiah, we're not sure. But the the writer is trying to bring something to account. And many times, because of where we are, because of our vision in our world, we miss some of the points that are are really being addressed there. It says in 1 Kings chapter 4, or 10, verse 4, when the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon, the palace he had built, the food on his table the seating of his officials, the attending servants and their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I have heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom, the wealth you have far exceeds the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. He has made you king. He's put you in this position of power to maintain justice and righteousness. And and we hear this story and we think, oh yeah, that's Solomon. He was a great guy. That's Solomon. Yeah, he was the wisest guy. Oh, he was so affluent. God truly blessed him. And all that power that was entrusted him was for a purpose, to maintain justice and righteousness. But if you go back a chapter, chapter 9, verse 15, it reads, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. 
his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on fire. He killed its Canaanites' inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Do you notice in verse 15, here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon used to build his temple and his house. What's another word for forced labor? And the writer also includes Egypt in this because Egypt in the Israelites' mind has to do with slavery. That's where our story began. And you see... Solomon is entrusted with this to maintain justice and righteousness. And what we see Solomon doing is using people and building his his kingdom. And these places that he mentions here are actually military outposts that Solomon is going to use. Back in chapter 10, verse 26, it says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Chariots are equivalent to tanks. This is his military power. There's a new pharaoh in town, and his name is Solomon. And you see the queen of Sheba saying, you've gotten all this, you've been entrusted this to maintain justice and righteousness. But what is Solomon doing? He is building his own empire. He is using the backs of the Israelites just like Egypt did. But now he's doing it for his purposes. And we see that he's accumulating these things. Verse 27 says, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as the sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from where? From Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku at this current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. So Solomon is now in the merchant business. He's also merchandising these thing, articles of war. He's an empire in himself. He's using his people to build his kingdom. He's wealthy. He's affluent. Interesting verse in chapter 10, verse 14. It says, The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents interesting number see that number is a a symbol of opposition to the divine i mean it still is it's about 25 tons of gold the story is here to reveal the heart of what is taking place see solomon might be going to temple solomon might be the king solomon might be wise but notice that jesus is the son of david not the son of Solomon. In fact, after Solomon, when when this is actually being written, we we start to see accounts looking back. And in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 24, it says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
But listen to this. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Oh, show me all you do, your affluence, all your religious posture, but show me justice and righteousness. Don't tell me about how religious you are. Don't tell me about how you're the children of Israel. Don't tell me, if we are going to translate this over, how you are followers of Jesus. Show me justice and righteousness in how you live. The United States spends $450 billion a year on Christmas. $450 billion every year just on Christmas alone. We have affluence, we have power, and we see ourselves in this place. What could we do if we cared as much about those who were in need and hurting, those who are in Haiti or in Africa or in Mexico, as we do our own way of living? What, what are we supposed to do with the affluence that we have, with the power we yield? The psalmist wrote, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Here's Solomon accumulating chariots, accumulating horses, establishing wealth, raising himself up in strength. And here we have David writing, some trust in chariots, some in horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. And then into the story comes a baby born under the rule of chariots of horses and of power a slave breaks in the kingdom of God and shows us the heart of God shows us what God cares about reveals to us the nature of God throughout the history there have been people who have ruled over the children of Israel, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians, here the Romans. And God always shows up. The scriptures are written from a people who are imprisoned, people who are impoverished, a people who are weak, and that's where God is reaching. That's where God is working. And that's where we have the opportunity to step into. So this year, as a community, we're wanting to feed some of these children. 150 children for 28 weeks. One day a week, we will provide food for them. It's going to cost us $5,000. As I mentioned before, if there are 100 people who give $50, that will cover it. If you can't give $50, if you give something, it helps. There is an envelope that you've been given. These envelopes, you can also give to your friends and let them know what you're doing. You can actually involve them. Remember, God involved the Magi. They were astrologers. And God said, I can use you in my work because you're just the kind of people 
I speak to. You can talk to your friends and let them know, hey, we're feeding a child. This is what we're doing for this Christmas. We're going to take some of that $450 billion and we're going to feed some children in Haiti. I'm not going to buy that sweater for my wife that she'll just take back because I don't know what she likes. Every time I've bought clothes for my wife, it's not gone well. I can remember this one outfit I bought for her. I was so proud. We were just dating there then. And it was this gray plaid top and skirt. But I didn't realize that they didn't match. It was a different color gray than it was the skirt. I thought, well, they're the same pattern. i just not good at that. Why do that? Why go through that? when you can be where God is and do what God is doing and cares about. And so I invite you to not only be participating in this, but invite your friends, your family to participate in them. Let them know, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we've done. We've built a cafeteria there. This is what we're doing now. We're trying to help the kids eat on a regular basis. And we're going to try and do things further so that they can actually provide for themselves. One of the reasons we helped build the cafeteria so that the school could actually rent it out and use it for different things. That's where we want to be. And understand this. If you're only interested in conserving your way of life, if it's only about how you see the world and you want to protect the world that you have, if that is your interest, who are you in the story? Are you a Caesar Augustus? Are you a King Herod? Are you someone who's trying to preserve the way they're doing through? Because you're not going to stop what God is doing. You see, God is trying to reach everybody. You can either be a part of his work or you'll find yourself resisting him and like Solomon, trying to establish yourself. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. And I invite us as a community to step into this story by helping those in need because God cares about the world. And this is one of the areas where we extend ourselves outside of even the United States into the world. Let's pray. Father, you reveal so much in Scripture that I think we are blind to many times. You, you have so many things that we are culturally not attuned to that we, we miss out because we see the story from our perspective. We, we see it from a, an American mindset, and we don't see all the nuances of what's happening in these stories. And Lord, I pray that you would open our understanding to to see what you are doing and that it is powerful and it is explaining who you are as much as it is the story that's taking place. And Lord, even as you broke into humanity in this weak, feeble state, a slave, a baby, you reveal yourself to astrologers and to shepherds and you've changed the world and you're changing it still and we want to be a part of that change and so I pray God that you would 
take hold of our hearts. Take hold of the things that we have and help reveal to us where we are and where we stand in this story. Lord, if we are like Solomon, accumulating for ourselves, if we are all about just having a lifestyle that is easy and pleasing and self-indulgent, God, may we be aware of it. And Lord, if we are neglecting those who are poor, Lord, we are neglecting you. Whatever we do to the least of these, we do to you. Lord, help us to step into this role, into this story, and prove who you are by the things that we do. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May Christ dwell in you richly. And may you not seek just your own interests, but also the interests and care of others. And may we take the message of who God is in Christ to the whole world. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. Next week, Christmas service. See you guys here. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.